Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome everybody back here for our afternoon. Um, those of you who are still outside, I will take two minutes or so to uh, do my introduction, so feel free to come in and, and take seats uh, down front here if you're looking for a seat. It's my privilege this afternoon to introduce uh, our luncheon speaker or our post-lunch speaker, and I was looking over his biography and his writings, and I thought, well, as Trent Lott said of Strom Thurmond, if we'd listened to James Grant, we wouldn't have all these problems today. I hope I don't get in as much trouble as Trent Lott did. Um, Jim Grant is usually called a bear or a doomsayer, but I think he's just been reminding us for decades of some immutable rules of human conduct, that you can't create something out of nothing, that artificial booms can't last forever, that you can't build an entire economy on debt, that paper is easier to manipulate than gold. In fact, as I read over some of his writings, he reminds me of Rudyard Kipling in his great poem, The Gods of the Copybook Headings. One stanza in that poem goes, Then the gods of the market tumbled, and their smooth-tongued wizards withdrew, and the hearts of the meanest were humbled and began to believe it was true that all is not gold that glitters, and two and two make four. And the gods of the copybook headings limped up to explain it once more. Back in 1996, Jim Grant was warning about the welfare state of credit, which tends to promote great bull markets, speculative frenzies, and excessive risk-taking in the financial and investment markets, while attempting to prevent the losses associated with excessive risk-taking. It creates the boom that causes the bust, but it attempts to abolish the bust, unquote. Well, throughout our latest boom, he wrote a column titled, Yes, But, for Forbes magazine, and he wondered in his last column in January 2008 if he'd led his readers astray by being such an Eeyore throughout the Dow's rise from 10,000 to 14,000. Well, as it turns out, maybe not. And frankly, some of us who had our heads turned by the supply-side Pollyannas should have been listening to James Grant for a long time. So I'm glad we have a chance to do so today. James Grant founded Grant's Interest Rate Observer in 1983. He is the author of several books on finance, including Money of the Mind, The Trouble with Prosperity, and most recently, Mr. Market Miscalculates, which is often cited by uh, Johann Norberg in his new book on the crisis, Financial Fiasco. He's also the author of a biography of John Adams, a, another well-read man with a deep sense of history who often had to warn people that all that, all that, is glitter, all that glitters is not gold. He's written for all the major newspapers, and he contributed an essay to the sixth edition of Graham and Dodd's Security Analysis. Perhaps most remarkably, this famous bear wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal that it's time to look for a barn burner of a recovery. And that's the kind of advice we all like to hear. Uh, so please welcome to our podium, James Grant. Thank you, David, and good afternoon, friends and acquaintances of liberty. Uh, <laughs> it is a contentious speaker who sets out by begging to disagree with the theme of the program on which he is honored to appear. Uh, but really, restoring global financial stability 
Uh, stability, so-called, was the false god of the bubble years. Uh, instability is the way of the world. Honest turmoil is my topic for today, and I am all for it. Uh, you will recall the great moderation uh, in the blissful 20 years only recently ended you thought you could see forever. Under the stewardship of the likes of Alan Greenspan and Jack Welsh, inflation was low, recessions were mild, and corporate earnings growth was predictable. Um, General Electric, the American icon, met or exceeded per share profit estimates every quarter for 10 consecutive years. Astounding. More than astounding, unbelievable, as the SEC subsequently discovered. <laughs> uh, management had cooked the books, neither confirming nor denying the truth of that allegation. GE spent $50 million of the stockholders' money to make it go away. In the press release that GE issued um, uh, by way of uh, distancing itself from this untidy affair, uh, the, the press release at the top bore the corporate logo, which seemed singularly inappropriate for such a subject. The logo of, you know, is imagination at work. <laughs> As GE apparently delivered stability in earnings growth, so the Fed produced apparent stability in prices uh, from 10% or so inflation in 1980 to uh, less than 5% a year by the mid-80s, and in the past 15 years, less than 3% as measured. Uh, no federal investigatory agency has looked into this feat of macroeconomic management, but I have my suspicions. Uh, the fall of communism and the rise of digital technology pushed down production costs. The global supply, supply curve, as my friend Edward Chancellor has pointed out, shifted downward and to the right. Absent a corresponding shift in the global demand curve, one might have supposed that prices would fall. Judy Shelton said as much in the Wall Street Journal the other day. But in dollar terms, prices kept creeping higher. Price stability is a fine and resonant phrase, though you will not find it defined in the law. Uh, functionally, the Bernanke Fed defines stable prices as just a little inflation, uh, say on the order of 2% a year. Uh, some years ago, Alan Greenspan uh, had another idea. He said price stability is, the, is best thought of as an environment in which inflation is so low and stable over time that it does not materially enter into the decisions of households and firms. Close quote. The maestro so opined in 2002 just as house prices were beginning to levitate. Uh, this was not inflation by the lights of the Fed's preferred index, uh, but it was inflation as Greenspan seemed to define the word. Um, I must say that his definition appeals to me uh, soaring house prices certainly entered into the decisions of households and firms. Indeed, uh, nothing else seemed to enter into our collective consciousness for about three years. Uh, we had home on the brain, uh, yet there was no inflation problem. Even Alan said so. Um, so... Uh, Borrowing from the canon of Austrian economics, I would define inflation not as rising prices, but as too much money. Um, rising prices are a symptom of the excess, and those prices may materialize at the checkout counter, on the stock exchange, or in the realtor's office. It depends. Uh, similarly, I would define deflation not as falling prices, but as too much debt. Falling prices are a symptom of that excess. One might so say, but in Washington, D.C., one usually doesn't say that 
inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Deflation is a credit phenomenon. Uh, falling prices might also be construed as what we call, in the layman world, is progress. Uh, Walmart has built rather a good business model on them. But here in Washington, inflation is, um, is, the, is the upward creep in the chain-type price index for personal consumption expenditures, period. Um, uh, here was the stability of life on a live, live volcano. Um, this country, of course, is privileged to own the reserve currency franchise. We print the world's money. Um, and what a swell job that is. Um, importing much more than we export, we finance the difference with our very own currency. Only we may lawfully create it or conjure it. Uh, these dollars we ship to our agents and creditors, the central banks of those creditor states buy the dollars with local currency. And how do they come by these baht, yuan, yen, renminbi, etc.? Why? They print them. Uh, the trail of these trans-Pacific transactions uh, fills the day's papers. You will see it, for example, in stories how in Singapore, uh, companies in the mining business or in the retail business are now getting into real estate. So wonderfully frothy is Singapore real estate. Um, in this country, you can watch every week in a footnote to the weekly Fed balance sheet, which shows you the accumulation of Treasury securities um, held in custody by the New York Fed for the accounts of foreign central banks. So these are the, the treasuries that these foreign central banks accumulate with their dollars, uh, upwards of $3 trillion. So uh, we pay our offshore creditors in dollars, and our loyal creditors send the dollars right back to us in the shape of security investments in our treasuries. It's as if the greenbacks never left the 50 states. What could be more stable-inducing? What could be better for our collective stability? So in days of yore, of course, a deficit country would pay its bills in gold. The loss of this gold would exert a salutary contractionary influence on local monetary conditions. If the deficit persisted, the price level of the deficit country would fall. Uh, lo and behold, that nation's export industries would become more competitive. Uh, by and by, gold would start a return voyage home, and the current account would return to something like balance. It wasn't homesick, this load of departed yellow bricks. What lured it back again was a lower price level and higher prospective returns. Uh, money does love a bargain. And one of the more winning features of this ancient thing called the gold standard was that the marbles of the world did not accumulate in one country. Uh, they tended to uh, be well distributed among many participating countries. So not for us today, however, this semi-autonomous movement of monetary gold. Uh, give us instead the apparent stability of managed exchange rates. Let the debts pile up on this side of the Pacific. The Treasury securities pile up on the other side of the Pacific. That's our system. Uh, so in the day, what was not to like? Uh, the world was evidently stable, predictable, uh, and we know that markets like predictability in their uh, rising confidence. It seems to me our leveraged financiers resembled not a little the complacent residents of South Florida some 27 years ago. Uh, there had been no major hurricane in that region since the one named Betsy in 1965. Uh, it was possible to imagine that there would never be another. Then the only major storm of the otherwise inactive 2002, uh, 1992 hurricane season came barreling through Homestead. Uh, 
Its name was Andrew, and it killed 65 people and inflicted $26.5 billion worth of damage. Of course, the analogy between that storm and ours is imperfect. Um, though unprepared for Andrew, uh, people didn't actually cause it. Uh, however, however, by lending and borrowing under the spell of ultra-low interest rates in the early and mid-2000s, we humans actually did precipitate this, our great recession. Monetary crises and debt liquidations are no acts of God, except insofar as the Almighty breathed life into the nostrils of Federal Reserve governors, Citigroup directors, subprime speculators, and innumerable other perpetrators. Let us pause here to name and shame, yes, these suspects, so that they might henceforth walk uh, the way of truth and godliness. Uh, who are they? I am going to accuse the human race. Yes, every last fallen sinful mortal, we humans do the best we can, but let us face the fact money is not our strong suit. Our forebears certainly understood. Um, uh, they constructed an elaborate apparatus of safeguards to prevent us from doing what comes ever so naturally to us. Uh, they put bars on teller's cages, for example. Uh, they instituted a sinking fund to retire the public debt. That was Alexander Hamilton's idea. Uh, they organized broker-dealers as general partnerships and not limited liability corporations and they held over the shareholders of national banks the threat of a capital call if the bank in which they had invested failed and left the depositors in the lurch. And, and, not least, they collateralized the dollar with gold and silver to restrict the government's power to emit paper currency. Uh, so compare and contrast, as they say in the essay questions, the present day. Uh, tellers greet customers cheerfully from behind an unfortified counter, uh, the Treasury sinking fund is a distant memory. It bought its last security in August of 1960. Goldman Sachs is a corporation and an apologetic one. Pathetic. Uh, bank shareholders have no contingent liability, and the dollar, the dollar is a piece of paper exchangeable into nothing except small change. Um, so... Um, uh, what a, um, a flattering view of the human being we have collectively embraced, uh, tempted to overspend, overborrow, or overprint, we will, so our lawmakers have decided, uh, turn away from temptation. Um, it seems uh, that James Madison was, after all, wrong. We are angels, after all. Uh, so Mariner Eccles... Um, was the Ben S. Bernanke of the late 1930s. And surveying the, the wreckage of the Depression, he expressed his disgust and mortification with his colleagues in the banking business. A shameful record. Fully a third of America's banks had failed in this Depression. A third. What an astounding record. Uh, top to bottom, 1929 to 33, nominal GNP in this country was down 46%. The top line of the economy was sawed in half. Only one-third of the banks failed. This was a time when Ben Graham was writing about uh, uh, the, the, 
the, the stress test to which one ought to submit the issuer of corporate debt. And in Graham's view, the, the, the meaningful test was the depression test. Could this company cover fixed charge in the depression? So in that environment and in the aftermath of the quite brutal liquidation of 1920-21, uh, the country was to be sure on a boom, to be sure finance was rather bubbly, but two-thirds of the banks in this country survived the halving of the national income, two-thirds. Um, in our Great Recession, nominal GDP is down how much? Anybody know how, how much? How much, you hear this comparison all the time between our sorrows and our ancestors. It's so much like the 30s, the worst since the 30s. How much is nominal GDP down from the second quarter of 08 to the third quarter of 09? 2.8. So the difference between the Depression and the recession is a difference between uh, Omaha Beach and a grudge match in professional wrestling. <laughs> and yet it isn't. Uh, the financial symptoms uh, today uh, bear an all too uncanny resemblance to those of truly severe GDP recessions. So let us explore why. So um, uh, I doubt that today's bankers are any inherently less capable than their ancestors. Um, rather, the incentives are different. Uh, before the institutions of modern support and subsidy, that is the, the Fed, the FDIC, the too-big-to-fail doctrine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, banks uh, had to look after their own liquidity. Um, operating under the constructive fear of a run, a moderately prudent banker held a comfortable cushion of cash in relation to his deposit liabilities, and the banks had a great deal of equity capital uh, to assets, as we would judge uh, a great deal today. So does the following quotation sound familiar to you? Quote, banking and gambling are two separate branches of finance, and they should not be combined under one roof. Close quote. Well, Paul Volcker said almost that exact quotation just a, just a couple of weeks ago, um, calling for the forced separation of conventional banking activities from trading and deal-making. But in fact, those words, which I altered only a little, in fact, these were, those words were from a Los Angeles Times editorial dated uh, January 5th, 1889. And the Times was then uh, commending the Farmers and Merchants Bank of Los Angeles uh, for its conduct during the local real estate bubble of the late 1880s. So the Farmers and Merchants Bank uh, is not going to resonate with most of you, but Wells Fargo might. This was the forebear uh, to Wells Fargo. Um, and and uh, the proprietor was a fellow named um, Isaias W. Hellman, Hellman being still a, um, a name to reckon with in finance in San Francisco. But uh, seeing this huge distortion in values, uh, Hellman uh, closed off all lending to real estate. Uh, compare uh, to uh, Chuck, um, the fellow who used to run Citicorp. I, name, name, oh, Prince, yes, that was the name, um, who said that uh, as long as the music's playing, you've got to dance. Well, Hellman heard the music and he said, stop. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a, a tale to ponder. Um, this long ago saga of discretion and judgment and managerial control 
1889, almost none of the familiar institutions of financial regulation and government control was yet in place in America. Uh, no Fed, of course, to press down interest rates. No government-sponsored mortgage lenders to subsidize home ownership. One word, home ownership. Um, uh, and uh, real estate speculation. Individuals and corporations bore credit risk, uh, not the taxpayers. Uh, the risk of loss was as yet unsocialized. But these were, after all, human beings, albeit Californians, <laughs> uh, uh, champing at the bit to get rich. That doesn't change, does it? I mean, not much. So a railroad rate war seems to have been the instigating factor in this real estate frenzy of theirs in the mid-1880s. At one point, you could travel from Kansas City to Los Angeles for a dollar. Um, so uh, in poured the settlers upshot the land prices. In Los Angeles, in the course of one year, 12 months, 1887, 1886 to 87, uh, standard business size lots went from $500 to $5,000, up tenfold, one year, under the gold standard. <gasps> it happens. Um, during the same 12 months, according to the historians Robert Cleveland and Frank Putnam, quote, the price of nearby ranch lands increased 1,450%, and former grain fields and sheep pastures were subdivided, sold as town lots, and made to yield fantastic profits. 25 towns were laid out before the close of 1887 along the Santa Fe Railroad from L.A. to the San Bernardino Valley County line, a distance of 36 miles. 25 towns, 36 miles, and I think some of them have been constructed by now. <laughs> Not all. So now the farmers and merchants, the bank to which the L.A. Times tossed its editorial bouquet, had built its franchise on safety and soundness. That was a business model, safety and soundness. Uh, Hellman, by the way, was the leading stockholder in that institution, and it was his motto that in no circumstances would any depositor ever be denied immediate access to his or her account. Hell, high water, or panic, the door was open. Well, how would you do that in a fractional reserve system? Well, you would sacrifice some immediate profitability for the sake of building a business. And to that end, Hellman maintained a ratio of liquid assets to deposit liabilities of no less than 50%, 50%. Unimaginable today. Uh, not for Hellman, the policies that cast Wells Fargo, his successor, uh, descendant, into the arms of the TARP and delivered a cycle peak to trough decline in the Wells Fargo common share price of no less than 83%. As for the real estate bubble of the late 1880s, it seemed to do no lasting harm to Southern California because of such bankers as Hellman. Now here's another historian commenting on that quote. Southern California institutions apparently perceived in 1885 the beginning of inflation and the Farmers and Merchants Bank of Los Angeles led in the inauguration of a policy of caution. By July of 1887, less than half of the Los Angeles County Bank's funds were on loan, less than half, and six months thereafter, only one quarter. The bank successfully withstood runs, and except for one or two unfortunate and relatively minor incidents, the flurry did not injure the banking structure of the reason. So... Um, I earlier uh, arraigned uh, the human race uh, for our sorrows, but some individuals do deserve special mention. 
Um, has anyone brought up the name of Bernanke this morning? Hmm. Uh, well, he is surely uh, one of the culpable ones. Uh, I fault him not, by the way, so much for failing to anticipate the crisis or even uh, to comprehend it once it broke all over his capacious egg head. Uh, rather, I blame him for taking as proven the viability of our jury-rigged monetary system, never mind that of the Fed's own dubious business model. And, and what is that model? What's the Fed's business model? It is essentially to fix an interest rate, a price. Um, that's called the federal funds rate. You might have thought that price fixing went out along about the time the USDA gave up on, on imposing its will on the soybean market. But no, no, on Constitution Avenue, price fixing is still very much the thing. Um, imagine 20,000 people about the size of the Federal Reserve's payroll uh, staring at one now very little interest rate, uh, prodding it, poking it, uh, taking laboratory specimens of it for all we know. What chance does this interest rate stand? What chance at all does this rate stand? You begin to feel sorry for it. Um, but is it the right interest rate? I'm going to venture that 0% is never the right rate, uh, that it is bound to distort investment decisions uh, instigate speculation, as indeed it's now doing here and especially in Asia. And there is the question of simple equity. Uh, why should the, uh, the thrifty uh, non-participants in our debt frolics, there must be, what, six or eight of them, why should these thrifty be condemned, uh, condemned to earn uh, nothing on what remains of their savings? No one asks, no one answers. Uh, but the underlying problem, it seems to me, is not that the Fed sometimes fixes the wrong rate, uh, but that it arrogates to itself the judgment and the wisdom to fix any rate. Uh, on Broadway, a revival of Neil Simon's Brighton Beach memoirs unexpectedly flopped, uh, closed just a week after it opened, and said the disappointed, disappointed playwright, quote, after all these years, after all these years, I still don't get how Broadway works or what to make of our culture. One could imagine a wiser and humbler Ben Bernanke confessing that after all of these monographs, all these books, uh, he still doesn't get how Wall Street works or what to make of our economy. And by the way, who does? Um, in the three hours left to me, um, <laughs> Uh, I want to say a word or two about gold, which is ever so timely. Uh, Roy Jastrom, a while ago, uh, published a book, and I guess a new edition is imminently to appear. Uh, but the book um, is called The Golden Constant, and it was about how gold holds its value over time and that you can buy the same stuff with it now as you could then, way back when. And you think about it, you know, if someone had written a book about the stock market, would they have titled it the equity constant? And if they had, would it have sold? <laughs> no, because stocks are supposed to go up, right? That's the whole point. Uh, gold is money. It doesn't go up unless it's invested. Uh, which brings us to the interesting, complex, and somewhat paradoxical investment question about gold, and not to mention its monetary, monetary question. 
Um, so, you know, people, you know, what's the right price for gold? So gold used to be, like this morning, was $1,135 or something. At 11.35, it had the same price earnings ratio as it did at 250. <laughs> same price to book value. It earned just as much, paid the same dividend. Um, it is, it's lovely to look at. Um, in fact, you might know people like this, it just sits there looking good. <laughs> That's what gold does. But it has tended over time, indeed over a great deal of time, to hold its value. Um, the tragedy of gold is not so much that central banks own too little, although you know, I guess they do now. They have come to the view that the dollar's cost of production is ever so modest, whereas gold uh, is rather hard to come by. Uh, but um, the tragedy of gold is not so much that we don't have enough of it in our monetary system but today, but rather that no one thought to take a little bit of it and invest when Cleopatra died. Um, she died in 30 B.C., and if somebody had taken $1 worth of her bauble, invested at 2% continuously, the world would be $343 quadrillion better off, a sum of money more than 5,000 times estimated 2008 GDP. The only reason you work, ladies and gentlemen, the only reason you have to work is because nobody thought to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, thanks, forebears. Um, but... You know, interest does not run continuously. There are no Augustan perpetual twos, no Beowulf threes. Um, history intervenes. That is to say, revolution and war and prosperity and invention and destruction, all these things intervene, uh, so interest does not run. So we live in an unstable world. History makes it unstable. The search for stability is a will of the wisp. In closing... Um, and yes, I am closing. Um, uh, let me say that stability is nice while it lasts, uh, but we must never delude ourselves into believing that giant corporations can deliver stair-step earnings growth over time or that uh, central banks and their staffs of alchemists um, can succeed in turning a, a manipulated interest rate into gold. So thank you, and I would welcome a question or two if one occurs to you. Raise your hand if you have a question. Yes, sir. Who is the bigger culprit, Barney Frank or Ben Bernanke? Oh, um, that is a question mainly of interest to Washington, D.C. I come from New York. <laughs> <laughs> the question was, uh, who's the bigger culprit? Uh, I mean, I, I'm all for focusing more on the human race. Uh, I'm going to name dates, and you tell me what happened in those dates. Okay, 1857, 1867, 1873 to 78, inclusive. 1884, 1893, through 18, Brian's non-election of 18. What happened? Panics. Yeah, right. So um, the gold standard seems to me is a wonderful human contrivance. It kind of evolved in a way that uh, Hayek and other greats imagine, uh, lead us to imagine the way common law evolves and language evolves. It was evolved, not made. Uh, the synchronous movement of gold between participating nations is truly a thing of not only economic efficiency, but to me at least, of aesthetic value. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful system. It happens not to be our system. We live in a system of subsidized risk. When you subsidize something, you get a lot of it. Um, and people are operating in a system uh, in which, so 
way back when people would look at banks and during depressions and the, the base leading up to the Fed's institution, they would say, when banks are too heavily levered, the depositors bear the risk of the business, um, which is a great way of thinking about banking. Uh, who, so who bears the risk of our system? You know, and Chuck Prince did not – he took the risk, but he didn't bear the risk at Citigroup. Um, an interesting contra case to Citigroup is another New York City financial institution founded in the second decade of the 19th century. That's Brown Brothers Harriman, which has remained a partnership for all this time. You know, the, the part, general partners are on the line for everything they own in the event of a failure, not just the, the stock options. And Brown Brothers is famously and tellingly solvent, as Citicorp is a little less so. Um, so I think um, that, yes, individuals um, ought to be named and shamed. Uh, Bernanke ought to have quit uh, in, uh, and as an expression of intellectual discovery about the dubiousness of the business model of the institution he chose to head. But uh, we live in the world as it is, and I think that our troubles today are not so much the represent the failures of Moody's and S&P and of the, the kind of the fake rocket scientists who didn't do their homework and who packaged all these securities and who mislabeled them. Yes, all these people did their part, um, but I think um, that the outcome was more or less predestined because the business model of Isaiah W. Hellman no longer is available in this country. It's no longer the business model. So when I am queen or king, which might happen soon or perhaps more likely never, um, I'm all in favor of, um, of reinstituting a kind of rugged individual in capitalism and with this kind of novel idea that um, you're allowed to keep what you make and if you fail, you fail. That, I think, would go much further than even Barney Frank is willing to go in cleaning up our markets. If, whatever question you ask, that's the answer. I've forgotten now. <laughs> Wait for the mic to get there so we'll have this on tape. Uh, your bullish uh, article in the journal was mentioned by your uh, in your inter introduction, and just interested in your thoughts as you as we look into the future. Um, you uh, you know write every week or every other week about the the imbalances that still exist and the ways in which kind of, we haven't kind of solved the problem of, of too much debt and, and excess liquidity and that kind of thing. And yet, sir, and yet you are anticipating a you know a uh, a significant boom. Does that um, how do you kind of resolve that in your own mind? Um, I am of the belief that the future is a closed book. You can't know it, and it is usually futile even to guess about it. I read these forecasts. Some, there's an email circulating on Wall Street yesterday. An economist was predicting that there would be no relief from unemployment until the year 2020. I felt like asking him, hey, is it going to rain on Saturday? <laughs> so... The future is unfathomable. That, to me, is that's, that's the value investing credo right there. So, so you can't know the future. What you can know is two things. You can know the values in the present, and you can observe how people are handicapping the future from, through their actions. Um, and you can also know the form. You can know the historical tendencies of cycles. So what I decided was the following. I decided, okay, um, uh, uh, on form, and it's a very strong form, uh, steep and violent financial shakeouts and recessions are followed not by meek and mild recoveries, but by strong ones. That is a tendency, a strong tendency 
into the 19th century. And it held, by the way, um, coming out of the Great Depression when the first Roosevelt administration undertook uh, programs of coerced reflation that make these look like, uh, you know, that uh, Hayek was still alive and running Washington. So that's one observation. The second is, the observation is, is how are people set up? And the, so the consensus of economic forecasting on Bloomberg looked for a 2.2% growth next year, growth rate of growth next year, which would be half of the, less than half of the average of these post-violent recession experiences. Uh, and Treasury bonds are priced for continued near deflation. So it seems to me that uh, uh, that the, the, you know, the contrary and interesting and possibly helpful thought is, is to investigate uh, the upsides, to think more about what might go right, about how things could surprise in a bullish fashion. And um, I don't mean to lay this out as a perpetual uh, is a certain truth. It's certainly, it's, this, is a, this is a falsifiable hypothesis to use kind of a, it doesn't rise to the dignity of a scientific falsifiable hypothesis, but the idea is you hold an idea until the evidence goes against you, otherwise you end up not only contrite, but worse, broke. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I continue to hold this idea. I think employment's, we, had, we ran a piece a couple of weeks ago called, let's see, on the coming shortage of labor, which I thought was rather more audacious of us, um, but that's our line. We think that the labor market is going to surprise the upside, and so is GDP. A brief question on measuring. Do you feel it is important to measure the full cycle, boom and bust, to really get a grip? Of, of what has happened, because we focus so much on the bust, so we forget to see yeah. the whole cycle. Yeah. And, and also, uh, measuring again, is it time to express our GDP in ounces of gold? Um, as to the first question, um, yes, one must look over the course of a cycle. However, sometimes doing so can blind one to, uh, to important theoretical facts that may not be evident in one's look over uh, the preceding good time. If you're looking from a recession and you look back to the good times, uh, you might overlook um, a number of problems. For example, in 2001 or two, uh, the Senate held hearings on, on the, uh, the, the, the high-tech stock market bust and the ensuing recession, which was so mild we might not, we shouldn't even bother. It was a pathetic recession, six months, why bother? And Alan Greenspan uh, uh, was conversing beforehand with, with, I think, Senator Phil Graham. I got the year right, 2002, perhaps. And Graham said, approximately, if this was the bust, the boom was sure as hell worth it, wasn't it? And Greenspan said, yeah, it sure was. And you can't make too much out of these two guys talking before a hearing, except that, that, that was the expression of, of, a whole, of a full cycle look at our troubles. And they were right to that extent. The boom was glorious. The bust truncated. However, um, uh, with that complacency, uh, the Fed set out, thinking it could, through its manipulation of a single interest rate, institute peace, prosperity, tranquility, and above all, stability to these 50 states, not to mention the world. The world is a dollar-holding economy, right? And on the contrary, the Fed did enormous harm, terrific damage. Um, so, yeah, one ought to look back. One, certainly in, in, in appraising investment performance, one must give a long look.
but I think even more important than the empirical look back in appraising or in imagining economic policy is having a, a good, healthy, Cato-like grasp of market theory. All right, that's the commercial. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. All right, we invite you to stay in your seats, and the next panel can come up here and proceed directly.